and welcome to another of our best of 2021 podcasts and this time around it's films and I'm joined once again by Chris Ward and Wesley Shearer. Hello both. Hey. And uh, I'm gonna, we're, how we're going to do it is we've picked five films each. Oh, I meant to tell you I've changed one of mine so there's a surprise for you <laughs> when we come round to it. But um, so I'm going to start off and I'm going to again most of my choices are around the Glasgow Film Festival because that's when I actually watched some films. I haven't really been watching. I mean, I've been watching the odd thing. We're not going to talk about Black Widow or Peter Capaldi and Suicide Squad, um, but you know, there, I've been have been watching stuff. But there were a few films again at the Glasgow Film Festival that I feel were worthy of flagging up. And the first one is Yorum, uh, which is Gaelic for boat song, uh, which was the first documentary entirely in Scots Gaelic. Um, it's about a, a community, a fishing community in the Outer Hebrides, and a, it's really interesting. It's there's footage, there's underwater footage, there's you know footage from today, but it's linked in with audio which was taken from the past, and I now can't remember how far past, but let's go before the 1950s. I think you know that was a, a whole kind of audio um, archive there. And so it links in people talking about what the village and what the fishing industry was like in the past with footage of what it's like now and how it's changed. Um, it's absolutely gorgeous, the way it's filmed. Um, and it's also got a score by Aidan O'Rourke. So not only does it look great, it also sounds um, amazing as, uh, as well. I'm just wondering, maybe we should do a film each rather than uh, you know me talking for ages and you know nobody saying anything. Um, so yeah, Yoram uh, Boat Song, uh, which was on um, at the Glasgow Film Festival, but has done really well. It's won a lot of awards and it's directed by a guy called Alistair Cole, who does everything almost, you know, there are some other photographers on it, but he's really done, it's his real passion project. And uh, I think you can, like most of the ones I mentioned, you can stream it now. You know, that's one of the good things about the modern world is that if you missed it when it was out, you can, you can catch up with any of them. So that's my first pick. Chris, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm going to go, I think, chronologically with mine in the order that they came out rather than picking one definitive favourite. Although that said, my first one is my definitive favourite of the year. So that's my own, <laughs> my own line of argument completely up in the air. So I think it's been uh, the, the kind of through line for me with film this year is I think it's been a great year for music on film. Like there's been a few different, like it's coming out from a few different angles. So most recently this weekend, we've got Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story out in cinemas, which is spectacular. And I think I, I haven't, I'm not going to talk about it in detail because I know people will still be wanting to see it and haven't seen it yet but I think best the original in just about every imaginable way is absolutely oh. spectacular um so there's that there's been a lot of really great kind of documentaries and concert films there's the um I'm going to talk about one myself later, in fact, but uh, streaming, there was Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary, Get Back, which is eight hours of footage called from the sessions for Let It Be and Abbey Road, and then which is just total hog heaven for anybody who's, you know, even slightly a fan of the Beatles, which I'm going to assume is most people. Um, 
there's there was Bob Dylan's uh, streaming event, Shadow Kingdom, which I think he kept typically mysterious before it happened, but which turned out to be a really beautiful concert film uh, shot by Alma Harrell, who shot uh, who directed Honey Boy, the Shia LaBeouf film that came out a couple of years ago, really? um, of songs from the first half of his career, so spanning from the 60s to the 80s, but done in kind of new arrangements in his current style with a, a band of younger musicians set in this kind of weird dreamlike hinterland roadhouse, kind of quite Lynchian environment shot in like beautiful black and white uh it's also incredible worth seeking out if you can find it anywhere in the, the nether regions of the internet um but yeah the, the one the one that i want to talk about my favorite film of the year is annette uh, leos carax's first film in nine years since holy motors which is a musical scored by sparks uh which uh, stars Anne driver and uh, marion cotillard it is uh, leos carax's first film in english Right. I think, or maybe, maybe not actually. You know, it's, it's, I don't think it is actually his first film in English, but he, he usually works in French. Uh, his first film since Holy Motors, which came out in 2012. And it's um, it's a musical, but it's not really like a West Side Story musical where you're going to come out with you know loads of different songs buying for attention and what you're going to be singing on the way home. It's more kind of operatic, I would say. A lot of it's kind of sung through. There's only a couple of really memorable melodies in it. There's a really rousing opening number, <laughs> kind of overture, where um, the, the cast all kind of play themselves. Uh, like it starts with Carax himself on camera in a recording studio with Sparks, who starts singing the song, and then get up from the studio and walk out on the street where they're joined by the rest of the cast, and they all kind of parade down the street together and sing along. Um, but it's a film that kind of asks you to kind of buy into it from the get-go and go with it. So um, Driver plays a kind of very confrontational stand-up comedian. You know, it's almost verging more on performance art. There's not a lot of actual laughs to be found in his sets. Um, he thanks Bill Burr and Chris Rock in the, the kind of closing credits. So that should give you a kind of an idea of the kind of style that he's going for. Um, and he's in love with an opera singer played by Marion Cotillard. Um, they get together, they have a very public tabloid kind of relationship and they have a child and the child, Annette, is a puppet. Right. Like literally a puppet. Yeah. Uh, nobody in the film acknowledges this. She's treated like an actual baby, but just throughout the film, she's depicted as a marionette. Um, and she's mute for the first couple of years of her life. But um, then something happens, which I won't spoil. Uh, and she starts singing uh, in a very similar style to her mother. And uh, it becomes a kind of weird take on A Star is Born, where she's kind of carted around the world uh, as this new singing sensation, Baby Annette, and placed stadiums and becomes like a huge pop sensation. Uh, and drivers there, like for want of a better way of putting it, pulling the strings. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just spectacular. It was one of those ones I kind of felt, so I, I first went back to cinemas uh, mid-June when they reopened I hadn't been back since March 2020 like I waited until I got at least one of my vaccines and I just felt like I was kind of in a slump with it for the first few months like I felt there wasn't much that was really grabbing me I was going to see a lot of uh, kind of re-releases and, and archival stuff and none of the new releases felt like they were really living up to that and I was wondering am I, am I kind of am I burned out on it have I watched too much kind of classic material during lockdown and all that can contemporary stuff not compare and Annette was the first one that kind of jolted me back to no this is great I love this this is I'm fully back engaged with kind of new stuff it's not necessarily like doing something totally new like you'll there's it's playing about with a kind of lot of tropes that you'll have seen before in one configuration or another but the way that uh, they're all engaged and kind of played against each other and just the kind of style in which they're presented is uh, is really spectacular I think and yeah for me it was 
I don't know if it was just that kind of shock of the new thing of like, oh, this is this is great. I, this is me kind of rekindling my love for seeing new stuff that's, that's put it at the top of the list. But I really think it's still like nothing else that's really out there just now. And if you, you think it sounds like something you could stand, <laughs> then you should, you, should, you should probably seek it out. I think it's streaming on, it's on movie, I think, in the UK. So you might be able to get it through Prime as well, because I think there's some kind of association there. But uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely loved it. That does, you know, uh, that I'm a fan of musicals, so that really does sound uh, up uh, my street. Um, Wesley, what's your first choice? First of all, have you been back to cinemas? Because I have to say, I haven't. I haven't uh, ventured back yet. Yeah, I have actually been back to cinemas, but I didn't start going back to cinemas until I think it was around October. So not too dissimilar to Chris's experience. This has been quite an unusual year for me, at least in terms of new releases as a sort of... Um, cinema gore or uh, just film watcher generally not quite as unusual as last year obviously because we were sitting here last year discussing what did we talk about because there's not really much <laughs> out and um, there's definitely been a plethora of new releases this year but again as as Chris said I really struggled to find any that grabbed me and the ones that did grab me generally underwhelmed me on their on watching them, um, whether or not that's because I watched them at home and didn't manage to, to catch them in cinemas, whether that's the ones I really wanted to see hadn't been released at home yet before I got back to cinemas or when I started trickling back towards the end of the year, just nothing really, really stood out. Um, that's not to say I haven't really enjoyed some films. I mean, there's films such as uh, Minari, which were released at the start of the year, uh, which was excellent and probably started off this year way better than I anticipated. Um, films like First Cow, for example, as well, which isn't on my list because I feel like that's a tricky one and that it was sort of released in 2019 in America, yeah. trickled out in 2020, but I didn't get its official release until 2021 in the UK. So that's been hanging around for quite a while. But um, it was actually one that I went to see, I think it was at the start of this week uh, or last week that just sort of slid in um, almost under the radar and went straight to my number one spot, which is Petit Maman, which is a new film from Celine Sciamma. Uh, I think I've spoken about Celine Sciamma quite a lot in this podcast over the past few years. I'm pretty sure I spoke about uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire as being one of my films of the year in 2019. Um, and also I've mentioned Girlhood uh, briefly, I think when we were talking about rocks. But this is... This is a strange one from her. It's not necessarily strange in the, in the sense of what it's about or the subject matter. That's very much Celine Sciamma. But strange in the sense that, first of all, I wasn't actually aware of it even being released okay. um, this year. It was, the reason I heard of it is because I'd sort of like thumbed my way through the, the programme for London Film Festival and sort of saw it buried down there somewhere. And the marketing around it seems to be really weak as well. There doesn't seem to be a lot about it. The screenings are very limited. They're in very small screens. Um, at least for London, that's quite surprising, especially given the success of Portrait. Uh, so very, very strange to see it just fly under the radar. But I'm so glad I saw it in the cinema. Yeah. It's not necessarily a film that you have to see on the big screen because the cinematography is absolutely breathtaking or anything like that, but it really immerses you in the experience of it. Um, and I think sort of poignant minimalism that Celine Sciamma always deals in throughout all of our films is really back again in this film, but it's probably our most stripped back film to date, I would say. Uh, that makes sense because when she was going into this idea of the film, she, I think, wrote it when she was doing the press junket for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
and then sort of shelved it a little bit. And during the pandemic, she revisited it again because she felt like the themes were very uh, apt for, for today. And those themes are, I'm trying to describe it without giving too much away because you just have to go into it without really knowing anything. But essentially the film starts with um, a young girl walking the corridors of what is effectively sort of a either an end of life home or a, a nursing home or something like that. And she walks into the room and says goodbye to all the people there. And her mum is clearing away the bed of her grandmother, right. uh, the, the young girl's grandmother who has, has just died. And the film then just begins to explore that relationship that she had with her grandmother, that she has with her mother and the relationship her mother had um, with her mum. And that's really how the film unfolds. And I don't want to give too much away, as I said, but it is just this really amazing sort of intergenerational fairy tale almost of grief, of grief, of um, emotional intimacy, um, companionship, all of these themes that are really strong throughout her films, but are just stripped back uh, in this remarkable, remarkable way. And the thing that I love most about Celine Sciamma is that she deals with these really huge, weighty topics and concepts, but she does it in such a small and intimate manner that is really affecting. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not gonna be affecting for everyone. Some people might find it quite quite dull and quite hard to get into because there's not a lot of bombast, there's not a lot of, you know, um, the beautiful moments are in the poignancy rather than the sort of striking uh, stuff and vigils that you see on screen. But it's just this really beautiful slice of sort of magical realism um, and metaphorical tale. And it's just beautiful. It's really hopeful. It's really somber. It's really quiet. But most of all, I think it's very cathartic. And I think lots of people will go into it and potentially get something out of it, whether that's a little bit of hope or a little bit of understanding about their own situation in this sort of weird world we're living in at the moment. Um, and I think that really comes through because she has this astonishing ability to direct child actors in a way that I've not really seen before. I saw another film this year called Come On, Come On, which really did not hit home for me at all. Right. And I think that was because it felt quite stilted in nature and it was striving for this authenticity that it really couldn't quite nail. And I think Celine Sciamma does it really, really well because she allows the child actors to sort of reveal their true self and their true nature as opposed to trying to make them act in a way that is an idealised version of what we would expect them to be on screen. So in this film, she has uh, two real-life twins playing two different parts, and they work so well together. And the moments that you spend with them on screen, is just, it's just amazing. And I think Celine Sciamma, for me, I'm now starting to realise, I think is just up there with the sort of pantheon of like modern filmmaking greats that exist within my mind anyway, such as Lynn Ramsey and Barry Jenkins and uh, Sean Baker. She's just doing stuff that no one else is doing and is just so quietly confident in the way she goes about her business. And I mean, there's a scene in the film, five minutes into the film, where the daughter's feeding her mum cheese puffs out of a bag and literally brought me to tears. So she's just one of those filmmakers and I would I would really recommend anyone checking it out if you can find it playing anywhere. Um, if not, I'd imagine it will come to movie at some point within the next six months. Um, it's interesting because uh, you've got that theme of family and a couple of films I'm going to talk about also have that. In fact, the next one I'll, I'll talk about does as well. It does seem to me, I wonder if that's been a big thing in all the arts over the last couple of years is that people having to either be separate from families or actually lock down with them that uh, 
there seems to be a lot of that kind of relationship stuff coming through. The next film I'm going to talk about is actually called Your Old Father. It's an Australian yeah. movie, but the fa as you can tell, the, the um, family are originally from Scotland. Um, funnily enough, the father in it, the dad, was at uni with my dad and they knew each other when they were medics. Uh, they, they kind of trained at the same time. So I took this film because I, I, I had a screener of it over and showed my, my dad kind of in the middle of lockdown. And it, it was fantastic. It was a highlight, I think, for him to kind of see this film about this guy, Jim Kroll, that, uh, that he knew. It's made by Heather Kroll. She's the filmmaker and she's also the daughter. Um, it's basically home movie footage from over the years. That, but there's also interviews with people who worked with uh, Jim and, a, and, and other members of the family as well. And, a, and there's other techniques uh, uh, going on. But what is um, incredible is the man himself. This guy who uh, trained in uh, Glasgow and was one of these, you know, kind of pound pond, you know, he's paid a pound to go to Australia back in the day, as a lot of people did. But instead of settling in maybe um, Sydney or Brisbane or any of the big cities, they took him to this town. Uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's it's outback basically it's one of the most unhospitable places you can ever imagine and he becomes the local a uh, doctor delivering three generations of kids down there absolute legend you know uh, delivered almost the whole uh, village or town's kids and also planted thousands of trees which was nobody knew about he was going about kind of in this place which is it's nothing looks as though it grows and he was for years, decades, going about and seeds, and then suddenly these trees come up. Nobody knew where are these coming from. You know, it was. It's the kind of place. It's good where to, to provide a metaphor. Yeah, well, the golf course, for instance, is almost all bunker. It's that kind of thing. It's just you know real sand and forever, and it's it's a real industrial town. So you've got you know the. the smoke coming from the local refinery and all of these things, but so. Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary man doing extraordinary things, which he views as ordinary. And, uh, you know, his family probably thought, uh, you know, oh, that's what dad does. And he's a bit eccentric and that's what, you know. But, yeah, it's a, lo it's a lovely film, um, a very heartwarming film. Uh, Heather's made other movies as well. But this was um, shown again at the Glasgow Film Festival and the perfect audience, I would suggest, for a film called Your Old Father. And, uh, and very moving as well. I mean, really, uh, especially when people are talking about the, the work that he did. Um, so Chris, your second choice. Uh, yeah, I'm going to keep the music going uh, for my second one and talk about Todd Haynes's uh, The Velvet Underground, which is a documentary about the band of the same name. Yeah. Um, usually I hear documentary about beloved band from the 60s or 70s and I think there's, there might be some good archive footage in this, but as a film, it's going to be completely uninteresting. It's going to be your BBC Four Friday night, you know, standard hour-long hagiography, talking heads, whatever. Um, so I was kind of mildly trepidatious going into this because I love The Velvet Underground and I love Todd Haynes. Yeah. Um, and Todd Haynes had never made a documentary before. Um, and I was like, he's one of these, like, he's an incredibly visually ambitious filmmaker. He always does a lot of really... Um, like he's very formally playful and I was like I don't want to see him reduced down to just the standard like 
you know, John Cale being like, well, of course it was great back then, but we couldn't have done that, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I obviously he swerved it completely, like, uh, and came up with like what in retrospect is like, oh, of course you would do it like this. Of course you, Todd Haynes, would make this particular film about the Velvet Underground. So it becomes a film not really just about the Velvet Underground. It becomes about the whole kind of New York countercultural scene of the 60s. Like when you think about it in retrospect, like the actual band's discography, which is slim, it's only four albums. And only the first album really gets any significant attention. You know, like it kind of breezes past the next three and you don't have that many albums to focus on in the first place, but the fulcrum is really the Velvet Underground and Nico. And it spends the first good half hour or 45 minutes essentially just scene setting. Um, and kind of lay in the cultural context of like, you know, uh, Warhol's factory and the kind of minimalist uh, modern music scene, you know, Lamont Young and Terry Riley and um, all of this kind of, as well as the, the, the individual members own backgrounds. So Lou Reed coming from this kind of Brill building kind of, it wasn't, I think it was a cheaper version of the Brill building that Lou Reed was in, but this kind of songwriter for hire kind of thing. And Kale coming from this kind of, um, yeah, modern classical world and, you know, more experimental side of things. And um yeah, and visually it kind of lays, um, it does do the kind of talking head interviews thing, but it also lays um, like audio interviews against kind of archival footage of New York at the time, does a lot of stuff with split screens, uh, you know, rolls a lot of Warhol's kind of factory portrait films alongside the interviews, um, which is great as well because they're very hard to access. The Warhol estate keeps a very tight grip on them. They're not available anywhere online. You kind of have to go to like the Warhol Museum to see them usually. So it's great to even just see those. Uh, in, in a kind of environment like this in a setting like this and it yeah it just becomes this whole kind of cultural document that periods a kind of a moment in time as opposed to just this one particular band whose story it does tell and you know it does follow the kind of the rise and fall narrative that a lot of these kind of films do but um i think it's, it's also worth pointing out i think that like how this is kind of a running thing with todd haynes where he I mean, he's one of the world's kind of foremost queer filmmakers, you know, and he's thought of as kind of, you know, one of the, at the forefront of being like the American new queer cinema of the kind of the late 80s and early 90s. And he's drawn a kind of these kind of cultural totems of the 60s and 70s in a way that you might not expect from someone coming from that kind of background. You know, he's made films previously about uh, Bob Dylan, about David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Yeah. And uh, the way he comes at it is, it feels like he kind of queers them in ways that, aren't specifically related to their necessarily being LGBT people presented on screen. Although obviously in the case of like Lou Reed and Bowie and Iggy, you know, there, there's, you know, potential there that, I mean, you know, nobody, nobody's saying anything for sure, but you know, obviously there are, there are stories and there are rumors and there are whatever about all of them, Dylan less so, but the way he presents them all and the kind of common thread that runs through all of his music films is as a challenge to the norms of the society at the time. And about these people who kind of stand outside of that society and kind of form their own community and their own world, this kind of hermetic thing of their own that sets them apart from the kind of prevailing norms and the prevailing kind of sense of cultural identity at the time, and which then forged a path for other people who found a sense of community in that to follow and these kind of senses of ever shifting identity. So whether it's, you know, casting six separate actors to play Dylan and I'm not there or um, presenting glam rock is literally like descending from aliens, you know, <laughs> and, and Velvet Goldmine or in this, um, just the way that the Velvet Underground shifted their sound so radically over the course of like three or four years, you know, where you're going from this kind of full on drone and, you know, like 
like anti-psychedelic attack of the first album to the kind of noise rock of white light white heat and then the kind of more quiet kind of acoustic led kind of self-titled third album um and, and then finally the kind of the pop catharsis of, of loaded at the end and uh yeah i think it's just it's really interesting that it's Haynes of all people that's telling this story because it is one that you know could be left in the hands of a much more anonymous filmmaker but he's still able to kind of make it thematically coherent with the rest of his body of work and it feels like a totally natural fit for him so yeah it was just as as a fan of both i was thrilled with how it turned out i think it's the best possible version of this film that could be made for this band he always makes you look at the musicians and the music in a different way isn't it that, 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 than you maybe had previously because you do say there's the kind of standard biographies of all these great musicians that we think we're not going to learn anything more because we've, we've read them and, and digested them but he seems to to make us do that and it's interesting that he's done it as a documentary this time as you as you mentioned wesley what's your second choice um <clears throat> excuse me so my second choice is it's a film that was on my watch list for the london film festival last year i believe um it was one of the watch at film home uh, watch at home films that they had programmed I didn't get around to watching it for some reason. I think I thought maybe movie would release it within a few months and just waited until that happened. That did not happen. Um, and it was only released uh, mid this year. But actually, I'm really glad because I really needed to flesh out some top five films for this 2021 podcast. Um, and this uh, ended up sliding in there. It is a, a Scottish film called Limbo. Oh, yeah. And it is, for me, it's probably one of the in terms of at least the um, more lower budget films that I've watched this year, it's probably one of the most beautifully shot that I've seen. Um, it's not doing anything massively different that you know you haven't seen before. It does wear its influences on its sleeve, but it's so well crafted into such a tight um, sort of runtime and it's, it's excellent. Essentially, it is um, a story about a, a Syrian refugee who um, lands on a small, tiny, remote Scottish island and how he tries to um, fit in with the community, how the community either accepts or don't accept him, his relationship with his family back home in Syria, and his relationship with the other refugees who are on the island, some of them who have been there longer than he has, but um, it's all about navigating this, the sort of complexities of that. But right away from the immediate sort of cold open, you can tell that this is just not your standard what you would expect from a film about the refugee experience. It's got this cold open, which opens in a community center um, with uh, two characters um, showing each other, or sh showing the, uh, the refugee community how to um, behave in a nightclub and how not to behave in a nightclub. And it's this really hilarious sort of offbeat sequence uh, with the two of them dancing together and uh, just showing immediately just dropping you into this environment and going, okay, I'm not, this is not what I expected was going to happen over the next hour and a half. Um, and that sort of deadpan humour just continues throughout the whole film, really playing up the sort of absurdity and inhumanity of like border enforcement and asylum, the asylum process, but while also holding up what's probably quite importantly a, a sort of mirror to Scottish exceptionalism, if you like, because within the first half an hour of the film, you're not, as a lot, a lot of people do think with Scotland that we are a much more tolerant society than others and a lot more tolerant country than um, our neighbours and across the rest of the UK. And we obviously know that's not quite the case. Um, 
So it really doesn't shy away from that. And it does show people's, um, you know, people's in, inherent sort of reaction when something like that lands on their doorstep and they're not expecting it. And this just really, the sort of undercurrent of um, bigotry of racism or xenophobia, but also uses its humour to sort of upend that a little bit um, and really focus in on the sort of almost Beckettian tragic comedy of it. It is very Beckettian actually in a, in a lot of ways um, and you'll notice that as, as, you, as the sort of film goes on. Um, and the, the sort of staging and blocking that's on display throughout the film with those beautiful cinema, cinematography throughout the film is just really sort of accentuates that. Um, and it's it's also got shades of um, shades of Bill Forsyth through it as well. Wow. Um, so it's it's a great little film. It's very very melancholic. It's quite original. Um, it's not. Uh, it's initially not a difficult watch. It sort of takes a, a darker turn towards the end, but it's quietly hopeful while also being very reflective and showcasing that sort of refugee experience, especially within a sort of small island community in a completely different way. And I really enjoyed it, it was great. I have to say that passed me by, it sounds right up my street. Um, so I will check that out. Limbo, you said it's called, yeah. Limbo, yeah, Limbo. I can't remember the name of the director, unfortunately, but I think he, he's Edinburgh-based. Right. Ben Sharrick, I think, right? Ben Sharrick, that's the name, yeah. Fantastic, good stuff. So my third film uh, to talk about is Anthony Baxter's Eye of the Storm. If you remember last year, I spoke about Flint, at least I think I did, which was the Anthony's film on Flint, Michigan, about the poisoned water and the whole kind of politic that was going on there and, and you know, people having to buy bottled water to wash themselves and their families and a terrible film. This is a completely different thing. Um, Eye of the Storm is about landscape painter James Morrison, who I knew the name, but I didn't really know his work. And it's this kind of latter, um, the last months uh, before he passed away, and he had an exhibition on at the Scottish Gallery in Edinburgh as well. And a, and it, he, I think it's Montrose, I'm fairly sure it's Montrose, but it's where Anthony's from as well. So he kind of knew James and decided he wanted to make this film about him and it's absolutely beautifully shot and there's also some fantastic um, animation from Katrina Black that's involved in it as well. So see I didn't really know much about uh, James Morrison but it turns out he basically had the same journey as Joan Eardley in that he started painting urban landscapes in Glasgow kind of Rotten Row and up that area near um, Town Head where Joan Eardley was based as well and she did her kind of kids on the street and that all those kind of paintings. And then ended up kind of going to Catalan as well and, and, and starting to do more um, natural landscapes, you know, off the sea, that kind of thing about, you know, strapping the easel to you and out in all weathers and, and doing that. One of the sad things in a way about the film is he could no longer go out, he was too frail to go outside and, and, and paint in the way that he used to, to do it, but he was still painting right up to the very end, indoors and, and, and you know, using his own imagination and, and, and all of those things. Um, it's a very gentle uh, film, but kind of all the better for it. And it's that thing again about kind of um, a, someone facing up to end of life and, and all the, the questions that go uh, around it and just, you know, not shying away from it, but keeping on going uh, right 
to the very end. Um, and it also shows Anthony Baxter as a really versatile filmmaker. You know, this is the guy who did um, You've Been Trumped, both one and two, about Donald Trump uh, on the uh, uh, the golf courses and all, all the stuff that went around there. And then we had the kind of Flint, Michigan and doing the, the film in America. And then you've got this very um, a genteel film about landscape painting. And I, and I just uh, I just absolutely loved it. It's, it's filmed beautifully. There's some incredible um, kind of tracking shots over landscape and, you know, over the sea and all of that stuff. But the real star is the paintings of, of James Morrison, which, you know, I would um, give away a, a lung to get own one of them. They're absolutely stunning. So, uh, yeah, it's called Eye of the Storm. It's by Anthony Baxter. And again, it's gone on to do really well with kind of awards and all those things. And uh, yeah, I'm sure you can find it to stream it if you're, you're looking for it. Chris, what about yourself? Uh, well, I think from sounds of things, we've all got our filmmakers that we have like year on year. Like I yeah. just named Todd Haynes. I had like a Todd Haynes film last year. Ali, you've had Anthony Baxter two years in a row. Wes, you've had Celine Chiama two years in a row. Um, but I'm going to talk now about uh, Power of the Dog, which is Jane Campion's first feature film in 12 years. Uh, she hasn't made a film since Bright Star in 2009. Uh, she did a couple of seasons of the TV show Top of the Lake, which was a kind of BBC co-production. But that is... Sorry? Peter Mullen was in that, is that right? Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. And... Um, yeah, but that's all she's done uh, throughout the 2010s until now. So this is her kind of like much anticipated return to feature filmmaking. And it's stunning. So good. Um, it's a Western, in effect, uh, set in the early 20th century um, in America with a very cast against type Benedict Cumberbatch uh, as a rancher. Uh, a very, the words that you, or the words that you use now for him are uh, toxic masculinity. You know, this very kind of brutal, um, macho, like kind of unrefined, you know, um, just asserting his dominance over everybody around him. And he shares the ranch with his brother, his much kind of more polite, well-heeled, well-mannered brother, um, played by Jesse Plemons. Um, and the brother, Jesse Plemons, uh, marries a widow, played by Kirsten Dunst, who is Jesse Plemons' real-life partner. So there's that kind of chemistry between them. And she comes to live with them along with her very effeminate, not macho, um, not domineering teenage son, played by Cody Smith McPhee, who was the young boy in The Road, the Cormac McCarthy adaptation, Viggo Mortensen's son in that. And the rest of the film kind of plays out against the kind of shift in power dynamics amongst the four of these kind of central characters um, on this ranch in, you know, the kind of wilderness um, of the, the kind of great American West. And um, it's, it's one that I'm not sure how, I mean, I'm reluctant to give much away as to kind of what ultimately reveals itself to be about, because I'm not sure that it's going to be completely evident from the opening, like, sequences, uh, the direction that it goes. I think, like, it is the kind of thing that if you pay attention, you can maybe take a guess at the general direction in which it's heading. But uh, the thing about it is that it's a, it's a Netflix acquisition again. So it had like a week in cinemas and then is now available on Netflix. And it's one that, on the one hand, I'm glad that it, like campaign was able to get the funding from Netflix. And that's the way, like, if that's what it takes to get it out there, then great. But on the other hand, I feel like it's probably been done a great disservice by being dumped on Netflix amongst everything else because it's a very 
subtly made film and it develops in ways that require your full attention at all times <laughs> and that's maybe not the most conducive kind of film for home viewing where you know you have distractions all around you whether it's just kind of you know the door going off the phone going off where you're scrolling your phone whether you're talking to people you live with or whatever it's just there is you know it's not quite the same thing as being having your attention forced to what's happening on screen by like actually being in the cinema so i guess my recommendation would be go back in time a few weeks and go see it on this week-long run in cinemas but uh it's uh, in the absence of that yeah like turn out the lights turn off your phone like don't speak to anyone for the duration and kind of let it let it wash over you um it's yeah it's a film full of great performances great moments um it, it looks fantastic um and it's just a, a yeah a really welcome return for campaign to, to the world of feature filmmaking and hopefully uh it won't be another 12 years before we get another one from her it's an interesting point because you both said um how when you went back to the cinema you didn't really feel it to begin with you know it was a bit kind of jarring or, or, or and i do wonder if you know, having to watch these, some great feature films on small screens or in the house, and, and as you say, Chris, all these distractions, really has been uh, to the detriment of cinema as a whole. I don't know, I, I find it like, I've really appreciated taking every chance I can get to go back to the yeah. cinema, like since they've reopened, um, whether it's been to see new releases or whether I've seen, I've honestly seen almost as many like older films, re-releases, restorations or whatever, as I've seen new releases this year, I think, hold on, my running tally, I will bring it up for you, <laughs> is, uh, so I saw 24 new releases in cinemas since June and 22 uh, older ones, so it's almost neck and neck, oh, wow. and not just stuff I hadn't seen before, you know, I, I went back and saw like Fargo in 4K, I went to like all the one car Y season that GFT put on, I went to, you know, uh, like uh, the re-release in Nashville, the Robert Altman film. Um, I mean, there is stuff in there as well that I hadn't seen before, but like a lot of it is just the experience of actually getting to go and see films kind of in the way they're meant to be seen. And that is kind of, I think, been the big draw for me in going back to the cinema is after a year and a half of being stuck watching it at home where it all kind of, regardless of the quality of the film, everything eventually just becomes kind of background noise to an extent because it's just something that's on your TV, which you have on, you know, every day. Um mm -hmm it's it's nice to actually go and have this kind of almost uh, ritual aspect to it again where no you're actually making the effort you're getting out of the house you're walking into town or getting the subway or whatever you're going into a room you're putting off your phone the lights are going down and for two hours you're there you know and you're just you're fully paying attention to what's happening and then you know you've made the effort uh you've paid your money and you're going to get as much out of it as as you can you know yeah. Um, I think that's something that I really appreciate being able to do again after more than a year of not being able to do that. Yeah. Two two quick things. West Side Story, which I know you didn't pick, big screen has to be seen on the big screen. I would say so. Yeah. It's, it's like it makes such great use of of the widescreen frame. I would say you know like I think it's. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I'm being too controversial in saying that Steven Spielberg's probably a more dynamic filmmaker than Robert Wise. <laughs> You know, who who made who made some good films, but I think he's somebody who um was only really as good as the material that was given to him. I don't think like Robert Wise is someone who often like elevated bad material by the quality of his own craft. Whereas I think Spielberg has in the past like made some yeah. good stuff from subpar material, uh, just because of the inventiveness of his filmmaking. But when you pair great material like West Side Story is 
um, with someone who really knows how to get the most out of it um, in every degree, like um, just the casting, the 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 scoring, the the like cinematography, the color, the framing, um, like just everything about it is yeah is operating at the highest level. And I would say like yeah, if you can get if you feel comfortable going to a cinema just now to see West Side Story, that is that's the way you should see it, like hundred percent. And the other, the other thing is, I know we stopped talking about superhero movies on this podcast a while ago, but Cody Smith-McPhee, also Nightcrawler in some of the X-Men movies. So oh, People okay. are wondering who it is. <laughs> Wesley, what's your third choice? Well, actually, I ended up watching The Powder of the Dog this morning, and it would have been a really, really, really last-minute addition to my top five because I've kept the fifth spot slightly open, but I knew that Chris was going to be talking about it, so that's not one of them. But I will say that I watched it at home and not in the cinema, and I really wish that I'd watched it in a cinema because it is so beautiful to look at. Um, the, the direction um, is incredible. The cinematography from um, Ari Wegner, who is someone who I actually quite admire as a cinematographer, is also excellent. Mm-hmm. So it really would appreciate uh, or sort of make the most of that big screen experience, as, as Chris said, but it really worked for me at home. I think mainly because I thought it was going to be initially some sort of atmospheric anti-Western in the sort of vein of Kayleigh Reichardt's type of films, which, as much as I love her as a filmmaker, are films that very much are difficult to enjoy and watch at home because they are so so almost painfully slow at times that you really, really need to be in that environment where you have no distractions whatsoever. The Powder of the Dog does start that way, but it's as, as it sort of moves through, it turns into more of a gothic melodrama, if you like, in places. Um, and it's just rich and full of ideas and it's, it's great. And yeah, as Chris said, if you can see it um, on a big screen at some point in the future, hopefully it gets another release, that'd be great. Um, so that's not mine in the top five, but I did love it and it would definitely be in my top five at the end of the year. One that did make my top five though, um, which I'm quite looking forward to talking about in the sense that I know Chris is absolutely not a fan of this director in any shape or form, is um, Pablo Lorraine Spencer, uh, which came out this year. Chris, I'm going to guess that you avoided that like the plague that yeah is- I, didn't, I didn't i didn't see it like i honestly like cars on the table i don't think i've ever enjoyed a pablo lorraine film i mean not just as kind of um like you know this is i mean the kind of point of comparison for this one was jackie right because that's like it's yeah. another one of his like uh tragic public figures like you know women of history kind of thing and it's done in a quite similar style from what i hear from that but even like his chilean work i wasn't really massive on you know he did a couple of films with like Ayo garcia bernal and like uh emma which came out last year but i just didn't really click he's just somebody he's one of these guys there's a few like that just now kind of international filmmakers like Paolo sorrentino is another one and denny villeneuve to an extent as well there's a, a, a few guys kicking around just now that i just don't click with for whatever reason and yeah lorraine lorraine is one of them but I will keep snark to a minimum uh, <laughs> and let you talk about your love for you know it's actually an interesting point because that takes me into what is my quite complicated relationship with Pablo Lorraine as a filmmaker in the sense that um I don't think I've, I've watched a few of these films now Jackie Emma as as Chris has mentioned now Spencer and he's a filmmaker that I have a lot of respect for and I have a lot of respect for his ideas and his craft and the way that he goes about um, his filmmaking. But he's also a filmmaker that every time I've left one of his films or finished watching one of his films, I've never fully been, that was incredible. That was, you know, a masterpiece. This was, 
there's always been flaws in it. There's always been something in it that hasn't quite worked for me. There's been parts that haven't clicked in place, but I always leave a film of his feeling like I've watched a filmmaker trying to create something a little bit more unique, a little bit more different, something that's um, just very, very original in places and is trying to, to subvert a lot of different things. And sometimes that's to his detriment. He tries to do too much in most of his films. But yeah, he's an interesting filmmaker for me. Um, Spencer's even more interesting because I am no interest in the royal family whatsoever. <laughs> Don't think that's very controversial for any of us to say. Um, I was not interested in this because of the topic or anything like that, really. Um, I didn't watch The Crown. None of that is appealing to me whatsoever. Um, the, thing, the main thing that really appealed to me, though, is that I am very... Um, very pro Kristen Stewart. I've a lot of respect for her as an actor. I think um, when she is cast correctly, she she can really excel in, in, in certain roles. Um, obviously, Twilight hangs over her like a dark shadow, um, as it has done for most of her career. But 2016, I think it was, was a really good year for her. She was in um, Personal Shopper, which really won over a lot of people. Yeah. Um, certain Women, which was excellent I think she was a real standout in certain women um I mean she was also in Cafe Society that year and was really bad in that but I feel like that was a terrible piece of uh, terrible piece of casting but yeah once she gets dramatic roles that she can sink her teeth into I think um she can be great um another reason that I sort of wasn't another reason that I'm really surprised by enjoying Spencer is because I'm just not a fan of biopics I really not generally speaking I think the problem with biopics is that they are so wedded and tied down to historical accuracy that it can sort of suck the life, the life ironically out of a, out of a film. Um, I mean there's like this sort of expectation from an audience I think because an audience tends to know the story of a biopic by and large. So there's this expectation from most audiences that what is put on screen is exactly what how they should know it and how they should how they've seen it before, how that experience relates to them. And if that isn't there, I think a lot of audiences don't, who are into biopics don't quite click with it. And it also means that it's difficult to then subvert that without a lot of pushback from audiences. So most directors tend to play it quite safe and they tend to be quite boring and dry. And I end up finding myself thinking, why didn't I just watch a documentary of this instead of spending three hours watching a biopic? Um, Pablo Lorraine for me isn't quite concerned with that. I think he showed that through Jackie, which did not land for me massively. I think I enjoyed the score more than I did the film. Um, but Spencer is quite quite the same. There's a fine line, obviously, between artistic license and taking extreme liberties with, with fact. I think he does balance that pretty well. He places it during a really specific moment in time, um, which I'm not going to get into the intricacies of the royal history of it because that's not really my bag at all. Um, but this approach really allows him to get behind what the public's perceived realities of the history is, really, and sort of focus on that intimacy of the inner emotions of his subject. And it also really allows him to remove the, remove the shackles that can be placed in, figuratively on Kristen Stewart in terms of living up to having to act and impersonate Princess Diana as the public knows her. And this isn't really... Princess Diana, this is Kristen Stewart's Diana, and she really embodies it in a way that is quite remarkable, actually. Um, 
there's some excellent understated moments um, throughout the film where she just really, really sells her version of who this subject is. But there's also really fleeting moments of, of overacting from Kristen Stewart, I, I won't lie. However, those little cracks in her own delivery of, of Diana really sort of mimic the cracks that obviously appeared in Diana's own performance, if you like, as she had to feel the way she had to act within that sort of really claustrophobic environment. And that claustrophobic element is played up, you know, it's turned up to 11 in this film. It's, it plays out like a haunted house, yeah. um, like sort of in this haunted manner, this sort of claustrophobic chamber piece. Um, there's lots of elements in it that, that don't land. There's this really weird contrived, um, I think it's Anne Boleyn, sort of the ghost of Anne Boleyn subplot that sort of kicks in. That is Lorraine just going off the rails as he always does in every single one of these films. Uh -huh. um, but again, I like to see filmmakers try things that are with a, with a form and play with a form that is really, really dull. And I think this is the opposite for me. And it was really, really riveting in places, really engaging and made me almost care about a subject that I have no interest in whatsoever. And um, he just presents it in a really fresh way that even though it doesn't always work for me, it, it stays with me. Mm -hmm. And parts of it, there's some scenes in that that really are just like unforgettable, but other scenes that are also unforgettable for the wrong reasons. Um, but overall, I just, I just loved it a lot and I loved it far more than I expected to. And it's just got this incredible, incredible score from Johnny Greenwood, this freeform jazz almost that's sort of jostling with these delicate piano melodies and these really jarring haunting strings um, and it all just comes together for the most part and some sort of really satisfying piece of filmmaking um, and I enjoyed it a lot Johnny Greenwood obviously who's having an excellent year with uh, also his brilliant brilliant score for um, the power of the dog so yes that is um the bewildering world of Pablo Lorraine's filmmaking that somehow seems to stay with me, even though it's not always perfect. Well, I, I will say I, I listened to the score and was like, ah, you're not, you're not winning me over at this one, Johnny Greenwood. I don't care how good this is. You're not fooling me into seeing another Pablo Lorraine film. <laughs> All right. I've been suckered in by that before. We have talked about um, Johnny Greenwood uh, in previous film podcasts, but he is sensational. His film oh, music yeah. is quite sensational. I'd like to watch this with my mum, so once again, she could sit there and tell me how Prince Philip murdered Diana, which will take any opportunity to do. That is very interesting. I've had discussions about that because I think, um, so my, my girlfriend is um, absolutely by no means a royalist, I will say that, but she's very interested in the history and part of the history that she's also interested does cover you know, the history of, of the monarch and, and all that sort of stuff. And she does know quite a bit about, about that. And her brain is very, you know, fact and historical and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, she's also really not a fan of Kristen Stewart in any way, shape or form. Um, so she came out of it liking it a lot more than she expected, um, but was still, you know, tied in a little bit to some of the, yeah. you know, the artistic license that was taken. Um, but my mum did go to see it. And I said to her straight away, I was like, if you go into this with no expectations that it's going to be grounded to reality for the most part, and it is quite, I mean, it's magical realism, it really yeah. is. Um, if you go in with those expectations and allow that to just play out, then you might get something from it. Um, and she did, she came away from it actually really enjoying it because it didn't have those, uh, whereas there's going to be a lot of people going into this seeing Princess Diana 
coming out going, what the fuck did I just watch? Because that was not, it's just not what you would expect. Yeah. Um, I'm aware, again, we've only talked about three films, so we might have to be quite quick about our fourth and fifth choices, uh, or this will be going on for a kind of two-hour pod. But uh, my next one is another film I saw at the film festival, and it's I'm a Cliché, the polystyrene um, story. Um, polystyrene X-ray specs, I'm sure you guys know all about uh, her work central to the punk scene uh, in, in the late 70s in particular. And um, her daughter, Celeste Bell, has done this film about her life but also about how Celeste's upbringing as being the, the, the daughter of polystyrene, you know, which was not easy. Um, she had her struggles there. And there's a bit which really hit me. She had all the fame, all the kind of attention that fame has, but none of the money. She didn't, you know, so there was a kind of poor and famous is a quite a dangerous combination, you know. And uh, Celeste, as many of us do about her parents, you know, was embarrassed by what she wore and what she said and what she sang and all of those things but it's a really lovely film again it's about family at its heart um it's narrated by Ruth Negga it's got interviews with Thurston Moore, Kathleen Hanna, Vivian Westwood, Pauline Black from Selector, uh, Nina Cherry, Don Letts and, and many others and uh, they're kind of woven throughout against this incredible footage quite rare footage particularly the stuff in New York and CBGB's where X-ray specs are playing. And um, yeah, it's just, I just thought it was a, a, a fantastic, we've talked about music documentaries, but sometimes when it's someone that you don't know the full story about, and it's being told by someone who has, who literally was there through the whole thing, it becomes a very different thing and a very engaging thing. And it wasn't just, I mean, there's amazing footage of like the seventies Britain, you know, and you realize again, how grim that could be. But here was this person that kind of lit it up through her performance and just through her being, whatever she did. And uh, so it was great to go back and hear the music again, but it was also great to kind of hear the untold story about polystyrene. Uh, it's called I'm a Cliche Polystyrene Story. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you, can, you can stream that. I think Amazon Prime, you can uh, get it there. Chris, what's your fourth choice? Uh so one thing I've been very aware of uh, during lockdown is the impending mortality of many of my heroes. <laughs> um, uh, the kind of like when you look at the kind of the generation of kind of the the greats of like the seventies in filmmaking, you know, when you think of like Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, whatever, they're all closing in on eighty. Like Scorsese is like 78, 79, Coppola is already in his eighties. Spielberg seventy five, and just very aware that like is there is there is there a, are they are there replacements for them or do we have have we cultivated like a generation who i mean obviously there's the generation below them you could talk you'd point to like paul thomas anderson wes anderson sofia coppola you know the kind of filmmakers who are now in like their 50s or whatever or who came up in the 90s um but then is there anybody there to take their place and i've been like kind of looking over i'm like i can't really think over the past decade of that many filmmakers who have debuted in the 2010s that I would actually reliably turn out for every one of their films. I feel like a lot of the, even filmmakers that I've liked, it still feels like a kind of case by case basis for a lot of them. Um, but one who has emerged and who feels like somebody that I will now reliably go see 
everything he puts out is uh, Raisuke Hamaguchi. He's a Japanese director who um, started making, I think he'd been making shorts throughout the 2000s, but he, he like moved into features uh, this year. Uh, his, I think was generally recognized as his debut feature, or certainly his break two is Happy Hour, which was five hours long. <laughs> and he's since made a couple of features since then. He made two films this year, uh, one which I've still at sea, which I don't know that got a UK release called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, but the one I want to talk about is called Drive My Car, which is uh, an adaptation of a Haruki Murakami short story. It's from Murakami's collection, uh, Men Without Women, which came out, I think, six or seven years ago. Um, Murakami mixed kind of track record with adaptations on screen. Uh, the feature adaptation of Norwegian Wood, I wasn't blown away by, but he generally has a better record with uh, short stories being adapted. So the first one was Tony Takatani, which was adapted in the kind of mid 2000s. And then a couple of years ago, Burning was adapted very successfully. And I think we talked about it on our end of, I guess, 2019 podcast that would have been. Um, and this one is kind of in that lineage as well. So it's about a, a theatre actor and director uh, who uh in the prologue like there's a very lengthy i should point out this film is three hours long so that's the first <laughs> first thing to know this adaptation of a short story runs a full three hours um there's a very lengthy prologue like the opening titles don't come until about 40 minutes into the film uh, and in the prologue you see the kind of relationship between the main character who uh yusuke who's a theater director and actor uh, in his 40s who um you know lives with his wife and she is also involved in that kind of world they kind of toss story ideas around between themselves and uh, he comes to realize that she's been cheating on him uh, and uh, he doesn't get to resolve that tension before she unexpectedly dies <laughs> so he, he comes home one day and finds her she's had uh, i think it's a, a hemorrhage of some sort uh, and just he finds her on the floor uh, so then the, the title sequence comes up, skips ahead two years, and he's now been invited to stage a production of Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima. Um, and he's to say it's going to be a multilingual production. So he has uh, Japanese actors, Korean actors, actors who speak English, and they're all going to speak in their own language. Um, so uh, part of his process is to rehearse the script by listening to tapes of the script, which his wife recorded before she died uh, in his car as he drives to and from rehearsals. So he specifically requested a hotel about an hour away from the theater they're rehearsing. But the, the program that he's in has a very strict policy in place that every uh, per, like member of personnel involved with the production has to have their own driver. So he's assigned a young woman uh, to, to drive, literally drive his car, um, as, you know, as, as the title suggests um to take him to and from uh the rehearsals every day and it's just a very subtly it from that setup it just becomes this whole very subtly developed um it's not like it's not what you might expect from that setup it doesn't become a romance or anything it doesn't become like a generation gap thing it's more about the kind of dynamics of recovering from grief and how that can intersect with work and uh like artistic expression and uh collaboration and uh there's just there's a lot of ideas that play in it and it brings them all together really beautifully and quietly and movingly uh it builds this moment of like real catharsis at the end for for both of them for for yusuke and uh, and his driver um, and it's, uh, yeah, again, one that I think the, the, the visual quality was undersold by a lot of his marketing, like where the trailers for it made it look quite ordinary. They seem to pick the absolute blandest shots <laughs> from, from the film, but it's actually a very, like, yeah, a very visually spectacular film as well in a lot of ways, less, less overstated um, than, than maybe some of the more, like, it's not like West Side Story levels of spectacle or anything, but there's a lot of really great, um like yeah really beautifully framed shots and it's uh, yeah again worth it, i think just to, if only to get your attention for three hours is worth seeing in a cinema okay that sounds great 
Wesley, what's your fourth uh, choice? <clears throat> yeah, so my fourth choice is a film I didn't expect. It might strictly not even be in my top five, but is also not a film I expected to really be talking about at the end of the year. However, yeah, I just I feel like I wanted to put it in here. It's The Finch Dispatch uh, by Wes, An Wes Anderson. Um, as everyone knows, the marketing has been um, everywhere since I think even pre-pandemic, maybe. Um, it's been obviously very much anticipated uh, and was pushed back at least once, maybe twice. Um, the reason I wasn't really expecting it to be here at, in the end of my, near my top five is because I did not expect to really enjoy it that much. There's numerous reasons for that. I mean, the older I get, I think the less excited I am by a new Wes Anderson release. Now, I am not one of these people who say that his style is so overdone now that there's no value or merit in it anymore. I do not agree with that at all. I think there absolutely is merit and value in it. It's just not something that I particularly feel like I enjoy as much as I did, say, 10 years ago, um, which is fine. Um, but also a lot of the reviews that were rolling in, not that I lend credence at all to any reviews that do come in, but a lot of them were saying that this is Wes Anderson, that is most Wes Anderson. This is his style turned up to 11 blah, 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 whatever, really. Um, it's more of the same, I think, is what they kept saying. So I was not expecting to really enjoy this, but honestly, I don't really know where they're getting that from because for me, I think it's the most removed from his style yet, while also being very, very Wes Anderson. Um, it is a, an anthology, really. Um, it's made up of three main stories, three main vignettes with a little one at the start and a little one at the end that tie it all together. Um, with any type of anthology, I think it's really difficult to nail every single element of it. So some of them didn't quite work for me. Um, a lot of the others did really work. Um, I did find myself, you know, thinking this feels a little bit long. I wish it would sort of wrap up a bit quicker. But the the anthology um, format, I think for Wes Anderson at least, because um, I think it's his first anthology film as far as I'm aware, um, that really allows him to play with that style that he's he's built over these years. And we've seen him do that before, you know, his free into Fantastic Mr. Fox and then Isle of Dogs a little bit was falling on from that and strayed a little different direction. We've seen elements of it over the years where he really starts to push his form and his style in different directions, but it's only been snippets of it that we've seen. We've never seen a full length feature film where he's actually um, played with all of those different things in the one film and the anthology film really allows him to do that, which is it just gives him time to time and space to experiment and take this freeform approach um, and just play with it in ways that are unexpected. And I really like that. I think um, the strongest vignette for me was the Benicio Del Toro and Leia Sado one. Um, and I don't think that the film really reached the heights of that um, as it went on. Uh, there is one with Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet. I think I've said on this podcast before, I'm not a big Timothy Chalamet fan, and I think he's quite predictably flat in this again. Um, but there is this really great um, performance from Jeffrey Wright towards the end and in, in one of the final uh, vignettes where he takes on this James Baldwin-like figure um, and really turns it into something special. Um, that story was a little bit up and down in places, but overall I'm just... I'm just sort of really surprised by the reaction to it. And I feel like I wanted to talk about it because people don't talk about Wes Anderson enough, you know? Um, but uh, that's obviously a joke because we cannot get away from it. But it's, it's not his best film. Um, and 
I'm not sure if it's even my favourite film, but I think it's definitely one of his most interesting and one of his most inventive, and I really respect it a lot, and it was a real surprise for me this year. I do wonder if it's got to the stage kind of where people take Wes Anderson for granted a little bit because he's got this huge body of work, you know, and people say, oh, well, it's not, you know, the Royal Tenenbaums, or it's not actually, you know, most of the films are something of interest there anyway, I would suggest. Definitely. There's real depth to it as well, um, which is surprising. And depth in ways that I probably don't even realise yet because of the subject matter is not something I'm overly familiar with. So I would definitely recommend people who think they're maybe a little bit tired of it to check him out because there is something different in there. I think it's worth noting as well, like Wesley says, like he does have this very recognisable style, but he reliably develops it or like yeah. gives some gives an interesting kind of wrinkle to it in every new thing that he does. Nothing that he does is exactly quite like what he does before. I think it's the kind of thing that like you kind of have to almost get past the style or your perception of the style to be able to appreciate what's actually going on beneath yeah. the surface of it. The surfaces are immaculate, but there's so much more going on, kind of roiling in the depths underneath it. And yeah, as, as Wesley was saying, there's so there's a few like very stark stylistic breaks in this one as well. There's like the kind of 2D animation sequence. There's these kind of like still tableau sequences where everybody seems to freeze in motion and the camera moves around them. Um, there's, there's a lot that's kind of... It felt like there were more overt homages to other films in this one as well. A lot of like Truffaut and Jack Tati and Godard, like kind of really heavily and obviously referenced in in a few moments as well. So yeah, it's definitely like again, I, I always take umbrage when when people say that he's static or may compare him to like one of the Tenenbaum children in this kind of state of arrested development because it feels like he is actually trying to do something new every time, just within his own kind of style. Um, so yeah, yeah. So it's time for our fifth and final uh, choice, guys. And this is the one I hadn't mentioned that I changed at the last minute. I'll be interested to see what you think, because I think some people might hate this film, but I loved it. Might be my favourite film of the year. It's The Green Knight. Uh, David Lowry's Green Knight. I can see Chris smiling. Oh, <laughs> nah. So I, um, I was wincing, Ali. I was wincing. <laughs> I thought you might be. I kind of felt you might hate this. Is that true? It's a very strong word. I, I, I did not enjoy it, I would say. But uh, yes, over at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it, I mean, it's absolutely my kind of thing. You know, it's um, it's a fantasy film, um, but a really weird one. And I, for me, weird in a really good way. I can totally see why some people don't get it. Um, it's one of my, the first books I remember having of my own as a kid was a Ladybird book of Gawain uh, and the Green Knight, I think was the, the name of it. And so I, I really loved the story and I'm familiar with it. This kind of, you know, plays around with it quite a bit. Um, stars Dev Patel as uh, Gawain. It's also got Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, um, Sean Harris, and uh, the brilliant Kate Dickey as a fantastic uh, Arthur uh, and uh, the Queen, whose name I forget now, Guinevere. And uh, it's... Yeah, I, I just love, I loved the way it looked. I loved all the kind of uh, fantasy aspect. I even loved the talking fox that was in it. And uh, yeah. Hey, listen, I'm a Lars von Trier fan. I've got nothing against the talking fox. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd be interested in what you have got. I, I kind of thought when I said, this, this is a bit like me saying, let's talk about Suicide Squad in some ways, which I could have done. But uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it as a film. I loved everything about it. I thought it looked great. I loved the pace of it. I love the weirdness of it, and uh, yeah, I, I would, I've watched it uh, many times. I watch it over and over, which I don't often do with a movie, but I really, I really enjoyed that. 
Chris, why did you hate it? Or why did you not like it? <laughs> There's no way for me to come come into this without sounding like a total killjoy <laughs> with this framing. I will say I thought um, I really enjoyed Barry Keoghan in it. I thought like it totally came to life for the 10 minutes that he was on screen. And I wish he had been in it for the remaining two hours. Because <laughs> it's this performance that's got a real kind of edge of danger to it and an unpredictability that I think the rest of the film didn't have for me. I don't know. I I kind of fantasy is not my genre. Yeah. I think that's something I need to stay up front. Like I'm not by and large, um, it's a hard sell for me yeah. in a lot of ways. And I know that this is kind of, it's Arthurian romance and it's kind of a slightly different thing than like Lord of the Rings or whatever, or, you know, uh, The Wheel of Time or any of the other kind of big, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So did my dad. My dad my dad loves Wheel of Time. My dad loves Lord of the Rings, but it was unfortunately not a trait that was passed down genetically. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I just didn't click with it. Um, I can't really, I can't really be more specific than that. I don't think it's the kind of thing. I, I, I just didn't. I kind of suspected that might be the case. Uh, that's not why I chose it. I, mean, I chose it because I really do love it. But um, yeah, it's my. It, it is in terms of film, it's my kind of thing. Uh, Wesley, have you seen it at all? No. It's not. It's actually something I was really looking forward to seeing because fantasy is not. Don't listen. Um, genre, well, fantasy was not a big genre. Heard my video. <laughs> As Chris said, it's not really my wheelhouse at all. But it was something that seemed to take a different approach to it, and I was really intrigued by it, and it looked great. And um, I was actually holding out to see it in the cinema. Um, and for multiple reasons I did not get to see in the cinema I think the release here was pushed back and pushed back and pushed back um, whereas it was released in America when it was supposed to be and the UK was way beyond when it was initially meant to be released but um, yeah I couldn't make it work um, and I know it's just sort of lingering on a streaming service and I keep meaning to watch it but I've just not done it yet but I definitely will because um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it I'm genuinely interested to see what you think because I think, although it is fantasy, it is doing something a bit different. But that's enough of that. Chris, what's your um, fifth and final choice? Well, speaking of films, that won't be for everyone. Um, so this is a... Um, it's kind of easy to get caught up in a bubble when you follow like film stuff online and you think, like, oh, everybody's excited for this. Everybody's looking forward to it. Everybody knows what it is, first and foremost. But uh, I have been, throughout the pandemic, I've been posting what I've been watching in my Instagram stories, whether that's like title cards of films that I'm watching at home or tickets of stuff I'm going to see in the cinema. And no film has had a response like this one has just based on the title alone and people going, what is this? So the fifth choice is a Romanian film called Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. And I'd like to say it's not what it sounds like, but it's actually exactly what it sounds like. Uh, so it's a kind of comedy drama, I guess, um, about a Romanian teacher whose sex tape with her husband uh, leaks uh, inadvertently goes viral. He uploads it to uh, a private site, which is then downloaded by unseemly types and then re-uploaded to much more public forums. And it becomes a scandal in the school that she teaches in. She's a history teacher. It's split into three parts in the prologue. And the prologue is the sex tape. And it's three minutes of unsimulated sex, like shot POV from a camcorder. So, you know, in the style of, of homemade porn. And it's such a weird experience to be sitting in a cinema with like 25, 30 other people. And two minutes before you've been watching trailers. And then two minutes later, you're like, yeah, that, that's a dick. Um, <laughs> so, the 70s or something yeah. like that. Yeah. The most surprising part about that is that there's 25 to 30 other people in that cinema. <laughs> there weren't by the end of it. 
<laughs> oh, really? Ah. Yeah, we had some walkouts. But um, yeah, so what it, it really throws down the gauntlet right away because it's like, it's all right, it's, it's a provocation from the start. You know, like it's really a lot of people are just going to turn it on, see that, and be like, no thanks, I'm, I'm out. But if you stick with it, it actually reminded me like i know we were talking about godard images and in, in, in the french dispatch but this actually really felt like uh like like godard uh, not in a slavish kind of recreation kind of way but it really capturing his spirit of being be, trying to be very in touch with the times but also trying to do something completely new with film form so it's split into these three parts and the first part follow uh, the teacher emmy uh, as she kind of goes about her day um and it's very much it's very clearly and explicitly set during the pandemic everybody's wearing face masks uh, people reference it directly and everybody is in a really pissy mood all the time <laughs> just at the end of their tether with each other with the situation and uh the camera quite often drifts away from her. She walks around the city to see like decaying buildings. And it's just a real kind of state of the world in 2021 kind of thing. Everybody's had it up to here. <laughs> and they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. People are getting into fights on the street. Like cars are running down couriers. There's like arguments, at supermarket checkouts. Everyone's just in a foul mood all the time. And we find out that she's going to uh, go to a parent-teacher meeting at the school that night to address the scandal of her late sex tape. In the second part, it's kind of a non-fiction essay, I guess. It's like a, a visual dictionary is how it's built, where it goes through in alphabetical order 26 different concepts um, from, like, um, I'm trying to think of some examples. The French Revolution is mentioned. Um, there is uh, blowjob being apparently the most searched term in the internet dictionary is mentioned. There is um, stuff about, like, prejudice against uh, Roma people. There is stuff about... Um, like historical atrocities, present day malaises, it just runs through in like 26 very, very well done, witty, scathing segments, just this index of ills in the world. Uh, and then the final segment is this kind of kangaroo court that the parents and teachers have set up to try Emmy at the school. Uh, the parents and teachers are all presented as very recognizable types. You will have seen them comment under, on your Facebook feed. You will have seen them get angry for no good reason on Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, it just, it's just this really scabrous, like witty, like kind of taking no, <laughs> taking no prisoners. I'm making it sound like one of Adam Driver's routines in the net, but it's uh, yeah, just a bit, it's like as contemporary a film as it's possible to make. It's, it's like, it's one of those films that's like so keyed in the current state of the world that that rather than like the three minutes of hardcore sex might be what puts people off watching it because if you're watching films to escape from your current situation this is going to just remind you forcefully of the situation that you're in um i feel like a lot of it still went over my head just through virtue of me not being romanian um i feel like that would really help like i i know very little about romanian culture i'm gonna throw my hands up and say um, but there is a, apparently a few of the characters that take part in the kind of the, the, the like kangaroo court bit at the end are recognizable types in Romanian culture. There's one guy in particular who's apparently like Romania's equivalent to Mr. Bean <laughs> appears in it. Um, but he is just known to the viewers as a funny hat guy. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it is, is, if you think you've got the stomach for it, then yeah, I, I absolutely would hundred percent recommend it. Uh, Bad luck buying or Luni porn by Radu Jude, who is a a very acclaimed Romanian director. I hasten to add, if my mother's listening to this, this isn't just you know a, a kind of a you know just somebody who's picked up a camcorder and gone gone for it. Um, so yeah.
it does sound a bit like a lockdown dream you might have had, uh, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, that sounds amazing. I have actually, I heard the, 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 the title, I guess that's one you don't particularly want to be careful when you Google it, I would suggest. Yes, I would say yes. I wish you good luck with your bad luck banging. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, Wesley, your final choice uh, for this year. I mean, how do I follow that? I have no idea. I mean, I don't think I can pull anything remarkably different out than that, but I'm going to continue with my theme of talking about a film that didn't make it into my top five <laughs> um, and don't think it was actually up there in my end of year list as something that I thought was brilliant or perfect, but it's weirdly a film that's sort of important for me this year for, for a number of reasons. Um, so the film is um, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which obviously no one can escape this year. It's been everywhere. It's probably done a lot better than maybe most people expected as well in terms of its staying power in the cinemas. Um, and I think it's really important for me because this year, 2021, has kind of profoundly changed how I watch films in a lot of ways. And um, we've obviously discussed that at length already. Um, I've not been able to get to the cinema much this year. Um, I've been re-watching a lot of old classics. I've been trying to get myself into things that maybe are outside of my wheelhouse and trying to broaden my horizons more than more than I normally would. Um, but also because this year I've, I've, I discovered um, this sort of like film community of, of um, people who have now become really good friends with, um, people from all over the world actually, um, through, through a podcast, it was a film podcast, and uh, basically just sort of formed really good friendships with people and they have introduced me to films that I would never have watched before, vice versa. And it's been a really important and significant part of my year, I think. Um, and it's also made me watch even more films than I normally would in a year, which is which is astonishing. Um, but the reason I picked Dune is because, again, sci-fi, fantasy, not really my bag, generally speaking. Not something I have a lot of attachment to. Um, I actually picked up a copy of Dune the book towards the start of the year. And the only reason I did it is because it's one of the only David Lynch films I have not seen because I had no interest in it. And right. also I'd heard it was utterly terrible. So- Singing his underpants, singing his- Yeah, that's it. Uh -huh. Even though I've never seen it, it's seared <laughs> in my brain somehow. Um, but it's, I basically packed it up and I decided that during my David Lynch rewatch this year, my rewatch journey, I was gonna, what, by the time I get to Dune and his filmography, I will have read the book, understand it a little bit more, see if I can get something out of it and then build up to the new release of the film. And that'll be a nice sort of 2021 project. So I picked the book up off the shelf, looked at the first few, read the first few pages and went, nope, put it straight back on the shelf again. And so this sort of community of like people that I'm now friends with um, started a book club. Um, two of the guys there are really into doing, they have their own podcast about it. And they encourage all these people to get together who are not really big sci-fi fans to start reading this book. So I approached it in a completely different way, learned a lot about it, and um, eventually really got into it. Um, and was really looking forward to, to, the, new, to the new film. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Blade Runner 2049. I loved the original. 2049 didn't really cut it for me, but I have loved uh, Arrival. So I didn't really know which way it was gonna go. Um, blockbusters again, generally aren't my thing. Um, they obviously have their place, but it's rare that, that any of the big releases generally interest me, but this was different with this new found attachment that I had to the, to the sort of, um, to the text really. Um, and it was just a great experience. It was the first film that I saw back at the cinema yeah. um, this year. I saw an IMAX, an IMAX, another place that I don't tend to venture out to because there's not really that much that floats my boat in that setting. 
Um, but it was really this profound sort of visceral experience that, that just had all of this emotional weight from different parts of my life attached to it that um, really was just a, a highlight for me this year, despite the fact that I came out of the film thinking, I don't know if that lived up to my expectations. I don't know if I actually enjoyed it all that much in lots of places. I mean, the film itself, it absolutely excelled visually. It was it was incredible piece of filmmaking. Um, I did go back and see it a second time. Um, I think because I was so close, it was such a fresh in my mind, this new Dune experience to me that I didn't really know what I wanted out of it. And I'm not sure that it did hit all the notes that I wanted from it. Um, I've seen a lot of criticism of it, saying that it's very cold and detached and completely devoid of any sort of emotion. But I mean, I kind of want that. I mean, if you're living in a world that's as grim as Arrakis 20,000 years from now, then people are going to be like that. Of course, they're not going to be all jovial and it's not Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's very gritty and it's very real. So I quite liked that, but I felt like because of the part two that's coming along um, in the future, it sort of shied away from giving us a longer film that really could have fleshed out a lot of the character arcs and a lot of the, um, basically what their motives of these characters are that really comes alive in the book, um, but doesn't necessarily always come alive on screen. Um, I think, again, let's talk about Timothy Chalamet again. I think he was, um, he looked the part in this film, the moments where he wasn't speaking any dialogue on screen, he just looked exactly as, a, as that character should in my mind. I think he carried it off really well, but when he started, <laughs> Speaking on screen, I don't think he can carry the weight of the character's journey. So it'll be really interesting to see how that develops into the, the second part. Um, so that was one of the biggest flaws for me as well as those kind of character arcs. But as I said, I'm still trying to figure out what my relationship is with Dune. But it was this amazing experience that really encapsulated my um, filmic journey of 2021, I think. Um, and I'm really grateful that it exists and I'm grateful to have had that experience in the cinema and it's not something that I'll likely experience again. So um, yeah, that definitely it was something that I felt I had to talk about. And while I sound like I'm putting the film down, I think more like the vast majority of it is excellent. It's a really great piece of filmmaking um, and has brought something fresh to the blockbuster sci-fi, I think, um, which has probably been, been missing in a world of Marvel films. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm looking forward to see it, and uh, yeah, got to be an improvement on the the the, the Lynch version, I'm sure. <laughs> Let's not say things we can't take back here, Ali. <laughs> what do you think of the David Lynch? Because he was it was kind of taken away from him, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not like really fair to call it his film in some ways. It, it's my least favorite David Lynch film, but I, but like my my take, I didn't see the new one, so full disclosure. But like as I was saying earlier, I'm not a big Denny Villeneuve fan, and my take on the new one was like if David Lynch can't make me interested in it, then I'm not holding. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not giving Denny Villeneuve much of a chance. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, not, like yeah. I think there are good things in the Lynch one. I think there are oh. recognizably Lynchian elements in the in right. the Lynch one, which you know the kind of the the heart stuff the wires and the hearts yeah. and stuff like I'm, I'm looking at wesley as i say is when you have explicitly said you haven't seen it so i don't know why i'm looking directly <laughs> at wesley as i say this but um yeah they're, they're, they're the kind of yeah their stuff is particularly in the early going of the lynch one but then as the kind of demands of plot and action kind of take over um you know it, it becomes less less noticeably lynch i would say it's, it's a model but i'm still i'm glad it exists in the form it does well not necessarily in the form it does i'm glad it exists I wish it was in more of a, a form that was more what he had envisioned. But you know, yes, that's, I think that's the point is that it didn't become what he'd set out to do, and it, you know, all sorts of problems with it. Anyway, 
let's not talk about a film that came out in whatever it was, 19. <laughs> um, we were going to talk about TV, but I think we've probably um, almost ran out of time. Is there anything you particularly want to say before we finish up? Uh, I mentioned the Beatles thing already, but again, just another recommendation that if you have access to Disney Plus, which I didn't and had to like you know scaff off others, um, but if you but if you can access it, then yeah, and you are at all interested in the Beatles and Get Back is extraordinary. It's just such a it does such a good job of recontextualizing this era, which has been historically painted as quite a toxic one in the history of the band that ultimately led to their breakup as still just four guys in their 20s who were really good pals and still clearly loved each other in a very complicated way um, and just had to put up with a lot of different factors that kind of any of them individually would have probably inevitably broken up the band, but they had to deal with them all simultaneously. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's just so much gold in it. There's so much great footage. So like some incredible stuff, like the one that's got all the attention is um, the moment that Paul just seems to pull the song Get Back Out of Thin Air. He's just kind of aimlessly strumming away on the bass while George and Ringo look on board. Like George literally yawns. <laughs> and and then all of a sudden like everything kind of snaps into place he starts he's just kind of wordlessly singing vocals along with it and then all of a sudden you know you hear is, is get back like he's playing get back and you've seen the moment that the song like becomes a song right in front of your eyes and it's like I, yeah it's just, just to be able to see the birth of stuff like that is is extraordinary like it's, it's incredible that they had so much footage uh, and that it still exists in a form that like that we can see having not been seen for 50 odd years or whatever um so yeah just as a, as a historical document i think it's it's extraordinary yeah cool wesley is there anything you want to flag up before we uh before we end this I mean, mammoth podcast not particularly i mean other than i've not really watched much tv this year but season three of succession is popping off it's great it's excellent it's everything that everyone says about it the fact that you can make a tv series about um, uber-rich white people in 2021, interesting and enjoyable in some sort of way is remarkable in and of itself. Um, I think the material that they're working with can be, um, could easily be stretched quite thin um, by a lot of other people, but the way that they're handling it is keeping it as interesting as it's ever been. And it is just a great Shakespearean piece of television um, and if you haven't watched it yet I mean why not it was something that took me ages to get into people kept getting on at me to watch it a couple of years ago finally watched it and it was the end of the first season where I fully clicked season two was excellent but season three is just doing something really special so yeah I mean that's pretty obvious isn't it it's probably the big tv highlight of the year but yeah it probably is I just want to mention the continued rise of Mark Bonner uh, as, a, as an actor that's finally kind of getting the, the, you know, Guilt, I thought was a, a really good series on um, BBC Scotland, and he kind of fronted that. And of course, he's in Shetland, which continues to kind of, you know, do well. And he made a fantastic documentary called Meet You at the Hippos, which is all about public art in the new towns of Scotland. It's on iPlayer. Okay. Do check it out because his dad was one of the the artists. You know they had town artists. Imagine such a thing that would create these uh, amazing things. And his dad created these hippos and elephants in Glenrothes and in East Kilbride. Um, yeah, it's a it's a lovely little uh, documentary, the most charming bit of TV I've seen all year. And it marks another uh, a tick for Mark Bonner, who I really do like as an actor. And a love Mark Bonner. Yeah. 
Well, thanks again, guys, for uh, talking film. Uh, it's a shame that we don't see each other more often, but it's always a pleasure to catch up. It is indeed. It is indeed. Thanks again, Ali. It's always great to do this. I always look forward to it. Great. Yeah, likewise. Cheers all around. And uh, we'll be back with a podcast all about the best music of 2021 very soon indeed. Cheers. <laughs>